we need to talk about ideas, good ones and bad ones. We need to learn stuff about the world. We need an honest, intelligent, thought-provoking, and entertaining review of what the hell happened on this planet in the last seven days. We need to sit back and listen to the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Dear listener, we're back after a fortnight's break, feeling fresh. We've got lots of news to talk about, lots of things have happened. This is the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove podcast. I, of course, am Trevor, a.k.a. the Iron Fist, with me as always. Uh, good to see you, Brother Paul. Thanks for Peace. being with us, Brother Paul. Sister Shay, welcome yes. again. Brother Hello. Joe, thanks for joining. Good to see you. Hey, and of course, there's a sly reference to Scott Morrison and his speech at a recent Christian conference, which has come under the spotlight and we'll be talking about first up, I think. So why not? Um, so anyway, we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about... Um, uh, a little bit about China, a little bit about Prince Philip, a little bit about... I really want to get onto the tyranny of merit by the end of this, so... That's what I intended to read, and uh, I... Sorry, I didn't get around to it. Uh, you can just wing it, Paul. That'll be fine. As so, I always do. Yeah. I read it, but a lot of it went over my head, so... Okay. Really? Go slow. Okay. <laughs> All right, in the chat room already is uh, Don and Bronwyn. Good on you. If you join us in the chat room, say hello. And James has just joined as well, so that's great. Um feel like I should probably give a little satanic update. Um, so what's happening there, dear listener, is we've had some good publicity. If you didn't see it, uh, Robin and I from the Noosa Temple of Satan were on A Current Affair on Saturday night just before the football. So that's a million people saw that. And they gave us a pretty fair run, I thought. What were you on? A Current Affair. Really? Yes. On Saturday night? Yes. Last Saturday? Oh, yeah. I had no idea. Yeah, so I would have watched go. it if That's I'd right. known. Neither did Shay. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> so, um, did you give us a Facebook page? No, I just was testing you, Paul. Yeah. To so. see if I'm a regular current affair watcher. <laughs> <laughs> no, to see if you like Giving the Facebook yourself page. away. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. So, anyway, they gave us a pretty fair run, I thought, because it could go many different ways, but it was pretty good. And uh, uh, so, anyway, that was good. And also, it's nearly just over a week ago now, there was an article in the Courier-Mail with Des Horton, and Des is one of these characters who strikes me, or struck me, as a very conservative, old-school um, Murdoch journalist, and always seemed to me to be fairly anti-Labor and a fairly right-wing sort of character. But actually, when he heard the story, he was quite sympathetic to the whole idea of it, and gave me a pretty fair article as well. And I thought to myself, boy... If Des Horton is kind of on board with this, and nearly everybody is, so mm. so that was good. Um, that were the major um, news items. There's a big scoop coming out later this week. Can't tell you too much about it, or I'd have to kill you. But um, I'm hoping that will generate a lot of publicity and even more pressure on Grace Grace in relation to schools and what's going on with religious instruction classes. Something terrible that we heard about. Um, so. So stay tuned for that. And any more from Grace Grace herself? No, nothing from Grace Grace herself. And oh, just briefly then. So with our application in the Supreme Court, um, next Tuesday, I will have applied to have an early order as to costs. There's an obscure provision where you can say, uh, no matter what happens in this case, um, it's a matter of public interest and 
each side can bear their own costs. And that would be nice to get that order. So um, I think that hearing will be on Tuesday. So on Tuesday night next week, I can tell you the good or bad news on that one. Um, fingers crossed, dear listener. So that'll be uh, something for that. Uh, oh, in the chat room, Scott. G'day, Scott, the velvet glove is there. Good on you, Scott. Um, other just legal things of interest, I might as well, while I'm on a roll, there's lots of legal things bubbling away, I think, where secular activism needs to concentrate. So uh, one is on the prayers in Parliament. Have I mentioned to you guys before about prayers in council? Essentially the argument mm -hmm. is that it's ultra-vires. Mm. So um, I think there's a good chance some groups, maybe me included, will run that argument. Correct. And um, there's also problems with like the Australian census. I think in the last census they put atheism, Joe, as one of the religions. Um, I believe they did. Yes. The Atheist Foundation, I think, were or rationalist humanists, we're asking um, the, to change it to, do you have a religion? Yes, no. If you do, then what is it? Yes. But it was, uh, atheism was listed as a religion yes. and I think was at the top rather than at the bottom as it had been in the past. It was definitely in the list of religions. So people could look at it and go, oh, I'm an atheist, tick that. By which they've actually ticked into the category to say, I have a religion. Mm -hmm which distorts the figures as to how many people are religious. And is a contradiction in itself. Completely. And yeah. I think approaches have been made to the um, census people to say, you shouldn't be doing this. Mm. And this is something where you can actually, again, make a legal case under judicial review. If a, if a government body makes a decision that is wrong, an error in law, you can actually take them to court and challenge it. So... Um, so whereas in the past it's like you ask and they say no and you go, oh, well, we'll try again next year. Well, <laughs> we're actually sort of reaching the point where we need to say, well, we're going to take you for judicial review and it'll be quite embarrassing for you. So mm. all those sorts of things it, are it in, the, in the works. 30% last time said they had no religion. Yes. And, um, but of the ones saying they had religion, a couple of thousand had actually ticked the atheist box from memory. I think um, atheist was counted as no religion. No, uh, well, in this case, they're talking about it being in the religion category. Have a look anyway. Yeah, okay. So that's where we're up to. Um, uh, hello to everybody in the chat room still. All right. Well, Paul, last time we spoke, I said to you, I think Scott Morrison is one of the more overtly religious prime ministers we've had. I recall you saying that. Yes, and you sort of disputed that as you got inclined to do with me. No, well, but, I, my point was simply that you overstate the case. Right. I mean, he doesn't talk about Jesus and his, his religion every time he appears in front of a camera or speaks in Parliament. He just doesn't do that. I, know I, I didn't he say does. he does it every time. Well, it sounded as if... But you, I was saying he was the most overtly religious and I wasn't saying he spoke about it every time. Good. But I think after this speech... What's happened is people have gone, strangely, people have said, boy, this Prime Minister's really religious. And <laughs> like, what? But he's what, never made a secret of it. I know. I'm sort of like, what rock have you been living under yeah. in the last four years? The sort of surprise at how religious he is. And I guess one of the main things was he said, he gave the in indication that he thought he'd been chosen by God to some extent. 
Oh, they all think they have been, surely. So what did you think of that? What did you think of that statement where he said that? Well, I think he's nuts. Right. I mean, not he's literally insane, but I think it's a nutty idea. Right. But it's fairly common among religious people, whether they're Christian, Muslim, or whatever. You know, they think that they're somehow special and, you know, they've been chosen by whatever deity they subscribe to. What did you think, Shay, when you heard it? You thought, oh, that's half of the course? Um, I was um, was basically surprised by uh, a lot of my friends didn't see it as a big deal. Right. That's what I was surprised of. But what I think is um, similar to you that, like, it's a bit too much. But it's obvious that they do, religious people do. um, Where am I going with this? (laughs) Most of them probably just don't publicly say as much. Yeah, yeah, I know, but there's but the there's something their like most of them are not as overt. There's got to be a yeah. level of um, charisma or self confidence to kind of go out there and think you've even got the um, fortitude to be prime minister. Mm. So let me give the Kevin Rudd view. Kevin Rudd said the idea that anyone leading a political party could believe that it is God on our side is just the stuff of real danger, in my view. We are a proudly secular country where people who are agnostics, atheists, Christians. Calathumpians can compete for office in our secular national parliament. That's as it should be. He he was sort of quite outraged that that uh, Morrison could think he is chosen by God to do this. My personal opinion was at least Morrison's honest. Like if you are really religious mm. and you think you could take two views on God, either God is an interventionist God or God is just a sit back doing nothing observing sort of God. And let's face it, most people who believe in God think God's an interventionist God because they pray. Exactly. And you don't pray unless you're expecting some intervention. Exactly. It's magical thinking. So if you're a religious and you believe in God as an interventionist God who responds to prayer and is actively working in our world, then you must think that he intended you to be the leader of the country because for a reason, yeah, but yeah, it's hand in hand with being religious. So, what did you make of Kevin Rudd? I think he's wrong. I think he's well, a wanker. Well, I just think at least Morrison was honest. Yes, I totally disagree with the idea, of course, of course. But at least he was honest. Yes, and if you were actually religious, like and Rudd claims to be, and I believe he is. I mean, he goes to church every Sunday. And, and so, all the when rest of he it. prays, but does he not expect God to answer his prayers? And when he was prime minister, did he not think? Well, the pro- well, God was watching down and thought, well, that's a good idea, I'll put Kevin in. Or did he just think God was a secular, non-active participant in the thing just watching from above? <laughs> yeah, it doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? Yeah, what, I was surprised by the outrage yeah. that um, people had and the surprise that people had uh, in relation to it. So, um, so that was that. What else did he say? Um, oh, he said that he's been in evacuation centres where people thought, I was just giving someone a hug. <laughs> and as I was praying and putting my hands on people, laying hands on them and praying. Where was he putting his hands? Well, you know, on their shoulder or, or whatever. And Watley said in a message, do you think a person deliberately praying at an unwilling victim or having surreptitious rituals performed without consent is a breach of privacy or an offence of some kind, Shay? Do you think? Do you think? I think it's spiritual assault. <laughs> <laughs> well, is it? <laughs> what do you it's think? It's just another thing to have to consider now with the risks, I guess. Like it's just 
I don't know. When, when, when Scott Morrison puts his arm yeah. around you as a bushfire well, victim, it's very unlikely. Then, um, well, you, you don't need to agree to consent to it. It just happens. Yeah. You, you can be sitting there and it and it happens. And well, people. And look, is that why he was forcing handshakes with people? Because he had to touch I, the. I don't know if that yeah. was that part of it or not. But is it? A, should someone be declaring that they're actually praying for you if they're? Does it really matter? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I think, you know. Yeah, I, that's I, right. I, what difference does it make? Yeah, I, don't, really? I don't think, um, I don't think he has to declare or it, reach it, for consent if he's going to, in his own mind, imagine he's We all have our going. private fantasies and delusions. I you that's know. right. I did hear a comment that said, Praying for someone is like masturbating, thinking about someone. You know, right. it makes you feel better, right. but it does absolutely nothing for the person being thought about. Okay. Now I'm that's offended. Probably, that's, probably, that's probably a fair enough analogy. <laughs> Maybe it achieves more than what the prayer does. Possibly. Uh, and, of course, what else do you say? Um, uh he said that he believes that the weapons of social media can be used by the evil one, and we need to call that out. Oh, yeah. And, uh, the evil yeah. one. I've already put a link to the Temple of Satan. Right. Thank you. Have you, can I ask, have, has, have either Robin or you had visitations from, you know, the big fella downstairs? Like in your dreams or anything like that? No. Not yet? Not, not yet. No. Okay, let us know. Oh, you'll be the first. To, <laughs> I, actually, you'll be the first. To so, know. Somebody did say was Satan going to make an appearance at the RA lessons, and I thought right. about as much as Jesus makes an appearance at the Christian <laughs> lessons. Pro- probably, yep, probably. <laughs> Who we got here? Unfair robot. Who's that? Is that? I don't know. Somebody yeah, there in somebody in the you. YouTube's called Unfair Robot. Okay. Um, all right. Uh, Bernard Keane in Crikey said this was one of the most incoherent, incoherent speeches delivered by an Australian leader since John Kerr at the Melbourne Cup. It's true. It was a very rambling, incoherent mm. sort of thing. John Kerr at the Melbourne Cup. Yeah, yes, and, and Morrison in this uh, in this speech as well, yes. Um, more on John Kerr later. Um, he did talk about identity politics in this speech as well, and he railed against identity politics in it. Good and, for him. Well, but again, he was so hypocritical because he basically said that identity politics was bad unless, of course, the identity that you were Is ascribing to was a, was a Pentecostal <laughs> one. Yeah, of course. That's the good one. <laughs> exactly. Yep. So he said things like there's a tendency for people to see themselves not as individuals but only defined by some group and get lost in the group and you lose your humanity and and lose your connection and you're defined by your group, not by God. And then he went on to talk about building communities um, like Pentecostal communities, like completely hypocritical in criticising people for identifying with their racial, ethnic Sexual gender groups or whatever, but uh, you know, but it's pre- perfectly a Pentecostal fine. group was a perfectly fine, and he saw no problem with that at all. He's, he's dumb. He's he's not a very clever man. He's not a very intellectually a lot, a lot of people guy. do that. Yeah, that's they? right. Yeah. yeah, very hypocritical. Yeah. Um. Right. 
Uh, also from Watley, we're still looking for a pseudonym for you, Shay. And mm. he said, can we call Shay Sharkbait? <laughs> Would you like to be... No, I think we'll find a different I one. I don't know Shark about... Bait. Yeah, what's yeah. the context? Yeah. Um, he's thinking of Landon Hardbottom with you um, hovering, <laughs> yeah, okay. hovering over the shark. And it's Nemo's yeah. nickname in Finding Nemo. He is. Sharkbait. Oh, was it? Yeah. yeah. yeah right. okay. Really? There is some reference in Finding Nemo, yeah. Oh, I've okay. never seen it. Ooh-ah. Right. Okay. Sorry, can I publicly admit I've never seen Finding Nemo? I, I had a toddler yeah, when it If you Monday care about fish, out. definitely mm-hmm. see that movie. Mm-hmm. Okay. Fish are friends, not food. Mm-hmm. That's right. <laughs> anyway, uh, so with our Pentecostal uh, Prime Minister doing God's work, fortunately the shovel sounds, found some Bible references that sort of back up that Scott Morrison is doing God's work. And we've got some examples here. So... Um, this is from the shovel, uh, John chapter 12, verse 16. Um, and the people said unto the Lord, Why hath we no immunizations? And the Lord said unto them, That is a matter for the states. Uh, Luke chapter 5, verse 21. Jesus looked at the poor and the helpless and the needy, and he said unto them, Unfortunately, I have no money to give you because I gave a $22 million taxpayer-funded handout to Jerry Harvey. Uh, Matthew chapter 25, verse 35. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you locked me up <laughs> in an island prison for an unspecified amount of time. <laughs> Food this, is the, this is the Bible yes. that Scott Morrison is, um, is reading from. So, Well, Kevin read that one. <laughs> uh, Luke <laughs> yes. chapter 2, verse 12. The fire burnt for 40 days and 40 nights and Jesus hopped on the first flight to Hawaii. <laughs> um... Oh, this one, I'll just finish with one other one. Um, Jesus told the parable of the three workers. The first worker called a rape victim a lying cow, but she kept her job because the government had only a one-seat majority. The second worker took a photo up a woman's skirt, but he kept his job and was sent on an empathy training course. The third worker gave her staff cardio watches. And if she does not wish to stand aside, she can go. <laughs> uh, I didn't send you this one. I just found this one as I was preparing tonight. This is from the John Menadue blog. If this stat is true from this guy, and I've got no reason to think it isn't, but um, the Catholic Church, considered as a single unit, spends more money from government than the state of Western Australia. That would be amazing if that's the case. Because of all the government hospitals and schools and other programs that the Catholic Church operates and receives money from federal, state, and local governments to run, this guy is saying that the the money going to the Catholic Church is more than um, what the federal government gives the state of Western Australia. If true, that is astounding, isn't it? If true. Mm. I don't know how you'd um, prove that. I don't know. I might uh, contact this guy and see where that information came from yeah so um still on religious matters just uh an old one that i dug up and threw into this mix because the religious discrimination bill is still hovering around there somewhere might come forward might not not sure one of the arguments and about institutions so the problem with the religious discrimination bill is the first part of it says don't discriminate against religious people because they're religious. And that's fair enough. But the second part of it is, if you've got a religious institution, well, 
you're very much entitled to discriminate against anybody who's not part of that religion mm. when you have that institution, and that's bad. And John Howard gives the example of um, when people say, well, that's, why is that bad? And he says, well, look at political parties. If the Labor Party wants to employ and insist on only having Labor Party members in its employment, that's perfectly fine, and the same for the Liberal Party. But I don't think that's fine because it depends on the job. If you're just a typist, a data manager, a social media manager, there's all sorts of jobs where why should it be the case that the Labor Party can say, I want a Labor person in this job when it doesn't really matter? When the Labour Party print flyers, do they demand that the printers are Labour voters? I don't know if they do, but they shouldn't. It makes no sense. Mm. But but that's just an external commercial transaction. But to have actual staffers in your office for a political party would ring alarm bells for me if I were. But if the receptionist, if the receptionist is just taking phone calls. I, Why is it necessary? I, I, if she just does her job of taking the phone calls and patching them through, what's it matter? You're uh, under an obligation. You can't, as an employee, divulge secrets. If you don't do your not job... Not supposed to, but, but some well, it's people illegal. do. Well, it's illegal yes. whether you're a member or not. Yeah, but and, you would possibly feel less than completely comfortable knowing that your typist... Sorry, Shay, you're not a typist. Mm-hmm. That your typist mm-hmm. is... Possibly an operative for a rival political party, wouldn't you feel uncomfortable about that possibility? No, not in these really? not in these jobs that okay. are not and, and also um, maybe in a church you would want all of your employees inside the church to be follow fellow believers, but a school is nothing to do with the church, really. Well, it shouldn't it, have it, anything it, to do with the church. Obviously, a church can insist that. You know, a priest has to be a priest, for example. But just if the role is is an office-type job and they do the office-type job, I just don't see it's necessary that they have to be a, one prescribed or a particular Pol- ideology. Political espionage. Provided they do the job. And ultimately, if you were really an, a spy and you were wanting to espionage, you would sign up as a Labor Party member. And How cunning. Exactly. Yes. Like, oh, we can, you know, somebody's leaking in this office. Well, it can't be Shay because she's, she's a member a, of the party. Yeah, well, couldn't have been Shay. But, but hang on a minute. That guy over there is not a member. Must be is him. He's not a member. I just, thought he was a member. You know, that's my point, is just because you've ticked a box to say you're a member, really, that doesn't prove anything. When you were, um, a while back, you were Mm. discussing the Order of Australia and the way that was selected, Mm. and the board who select the Orders of Australia were affiliated with the Liberal Party. Yes. And I don't know if you remember saying, but that you wouldn't put put Paul on your teams (laughs) because you're not sure how he would decide things. Do you remember that? And that's because of my my knowledge of Paul, (laughs) not because of what box he's ticked. But is it similar to what we're saying here about we want to pick particular people because we want them to move in a particular way or make decisions in a particular way? I don't think that's a good analogy because people in that role were exercising a discretion, repower, to choose somebody 
for Australian of the Year. Yes. Where there's no right or wrong answers and there's a your biases and whatever would play a big part in your choice mm-hmm. of who you're selecting. But in a lot of roles in a political party, the guy who's putting the signs up in your backyards, the person printing flyers, the person answering the phone, the person organising volunteers, just really. What, it's, what it's, I really it's want. It's no discretion a- in that. You just do the job. Yes, yeah. but they've ordered an urgent review on how they select the Australian of the Year. As yes. a consequence, they're saying yes. it's it's not related, but it does seem to be convenient that our current Australian of the Year has yes. been causing some upset for them. Yes. So they want to launch a review yes. to see how they can better select people that will be more... They clearly looked at it and went, annoying. we thought we had this group stacked and look at them. <laughs> <laughs> Look what we ended up with. <laughs> Who's the current Australian? She's that Grace Tame. Yeah. Oh, Grace Tame. Mm. Okay. Yeah, who was the sort of um, leader of the claim, charge. Yeah, her claim to fame was because she wanted the ability to name herself as a victim in sexual assault mm. and was being muzzled by the laws that stopped that. So, And that yeah. law has subsequently been changed, I, I believe. As a result, of her, as a result a of her activism. state law in Tasmania, yeah, I think. I think so. It? As a result of her activism, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think they basically said, God damn it. <laughs> I thought this group was stacked. No? So, or maybe, Trevor. Seemingly. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. They're more objective in their choices than you give them credit for. Uh, maybe. So, why would the government be wanting to so change you're, it? You're why is the government wanting to review it? I don't know. They didn't like the objective choice. Like, I. I I think we have our mm. boards a bit mm. mixed up. So mm. the people who select Order of Australia, mm. I think they are. But did they select they are, Grace Tone? No. There's oh. an Australian of the Year commission. Aren't they different boards? Oh. I think that might be where we're What are, we, what are the two different boards? I've, so uh, the order, when, we were, when you made that uh, joke about Paul, okay, I think we were discussing Order of Australia. As opposed to Australian of the Year. Uh, yeah, right. which okay. I think are right. different boards. Oh, so we've got okay, one okay. stacked and right. we think we need to stack the other okay. one. That could be it. Yes. That yeah. could be it. Yeah. yeah. So anyway. Interesting. Through a curveball. Yeah. Yes. I've been yeah. intently listening to your podcast, as okay. you can tell. Yes. <laughs> yes. Okay. Um, uh Okay, that was that. And the question for John Howard is how many church I'm sorry, how many hospitals and how many schools do the various political parties run? Mm. Um, schools? Well, he wasn't referring to schools. He was talking about staff. He he said, quote, I wouldn't expect the Labour Party to employ somebody in their office or on their yeah, staff. Yeah, but he was talking about schools and hospitals. Oh, was uh, he? Yeah. La- I think he was Howard. talking Howard was talking about schools. Um no no, he was talking about political organ well. He was saying political organisations should be able to employ people of the party and, and he therefore was, he was schools should be able to... Religious employ, schools should be able to, Employ yes. religious people. That was his but, analogy. But, but we don't have political schools that are run by the Labour Party or the Liberal Party yeah. in the same way. Yeah. Not yet. Well, they see it as an ethos and an ideology. If a group of... Uh, of a, a polit- a, an organisation with a political ideology should be able to choose staff who have that same political ideology, was his analogy for so schools that have a religious maybe, ideology. Maybe we could have yeah. an independent um, political school where kids are all indoctrinated into um, yes. socialism. Yes. Uh, I think the LNP would particularly support the uh, freedoms to um, 
indoctrinate children. Well, start up a private school for socialists and they won't stop you. Mm. We've got a new patron. Thanks to Rick. Thanks for signing on. Um, China, lots of beating of the drums on China in the last week or two. We had on Anzac Day, Mr. Pazulo sent a message to staffers. He did not specifically mention China, but he said the drums of war beat sometimes faintly and distantly and at other times more loudly and ever closer. And then we had the Defence Minister, Peter Dutton, warning of potential conflict between the two nations, which should not be discounted. And we had former Defence Minister Christopher Pine warned that the chances of war with China in the Indo-Pacific were rising. So lots of talk in the media by certain people. I so, heard the interview with Peter mm, Dutton on Insiders. Did, mm, do you guys watch Insiders? No. no. I don't watch it regularly anymore, mm. but I knew Peter Dutton was going to be the guest interviewee mm-hmm. mm. on Sunday. So I, I went back and watched it on iView. Mm-hmm. He did not warn anything. He was asked mm. by the interviewer, you know, um, do you think that there will be a, an armed conflict mm-hmm. over Taiwan. He said that should not be discounted. Mm-hmm. He didn't make any warning. He just said, basically, you can't rule it out. Mm-hmm. And he's quite correct. Mm-hmm. You can't rule it out. Mm. It's a looming and very real possibility. Well, what he said was it shouldn't be discounted, which means... That's uh, not exactly a warning. Well, he's saying you shouldn't be uh, reducing... Discount means reduce, yeah? You shouldn't be playing down the threat. Yeah, but it's not the same as mm. saying, you shouldn't be. I'm warning you guys, mm. I'm warning you, there's going to be a fight over this. Yeah, well, I know? just quoted him here as saying well, that. You, it seems to me that you're, mm. you're, you're, you know, sh- spicing it up a little bit with your own Well, I quoted him as saying issue. should not be discounted. Well, the words You I said used. warned. So, the word warned is right. there on the screen. Well, that's from this article saying, well, in the context. I think, you're, I think you're egging it a little bit, Trevor, mm. to be honest. The I mean, he, was, he, it was a, he didn't go mm. on about it, you know. Mm. He just said, well, can't be dis- discounted. Mm. He didn't go on and on about it at mm. all. Mm. He just said, yeah, it can't be discounted. Mm. That's Basically, all he said about it. Well, and it's up to your viewers what you think those words mean. <laughs> oh dear! But what about I mean, the what, collection what? of people I mean, coming forward I mean, to discuss s- it? Somebody like um, Josh Frydenberg said, um, "Well, we're not about to go to war with anyone." Mm. Like that is not a warning. That is, that is, we're not about to go to war with anyone. Whereas, oh, the threat of war should not be discounted. Yeah, I just it's a, it's think a difference. You, I, I just think you 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 like to find reasons to criticise Peter Dutton. On the other hand, what Christopher Pine said certainly sounded uh, more like an overt overt warning. What about this um, guy who's some sort of bureaucrat, Bazulo, who said about the drums of war beating sometimes faintly and distantly, and he he gave a speech about referring to warriors. Did you think his was a? Oh, I didn't. Didn't hear him speak. Right. I'm sorry. Yeah, but, yeah. Yeah, but that one does sound more of a, of yeah. a warning. Mm. So anyway, uh, we've just got out of Afghanistan, and it seems to me that uh, 
the Liberal Party would be happy for us to get into China as uh, before we even know it. <laughs> really? Yeah. Yeah. They'd be happy. Yes. The Liberal Party would be happy if we went to war with they China. They seem to be encouraging it. Oh, Jesus Christ. They, they, they seem to be encouraging it. Uh, have you been taking drugs, Trevor? Because uh, that is just, just deluded. Well, well, the Liberal Party they, would be happy for us to go to war with China. They, they seem to be encouraging it. Have a look at the time frame. They seem to be encouraging it. Instead of being diplomatic, they actually they actually seem to be encouraging it. I've been extremely disappointed. I believe we got some pop, um, some yeah. opium from right. Afghanistan that we want to get rid of. <laughs> <laughs> so the the point of uh, the point of it is there's been a lot of talk by Pizzullo and Pine and uh, others, which seems to be beating up the possibility of war with China. It's out there, Trevor. It's mm. all around the world. Mm. Everybody's talking but, about but, it. But we... So it's ab- not like the no, Liberal no, Party no, have a monopoly no, on this No, but topic. we, above all other countries, ex- with the exception of America, are the most aggressive in our confronting of China at the moment. Do you not agree with that statement? No, I don't. You think we're just part of the... Middle of the road pack, do you? I think the Australian government has been extremely diplomatic in their dealings with China, considering right. considering the extremely hostile trade measures uh, imposed by China right. in, in recent months. And right. So you don't see Australia at, at the forefront of a <laughs> of a of a campaign against China they're, at all. They're you in a group of countries that have publicly mm. expressed concern, mm. for sure. Mm. But aggressive? I w- certainly mm. wouldn't use the word aggressive. They've mm. made it very clear that they've made numerous attempts to contact the Chinese government and talk with them, minister to minister, mm. and the Chinese are just refusing to pick up the phone. So mm. why do you find fault mm. with the Liberal Party and mm. not with the Chinese Communist Party on that on that level? Well, well, the Chinese have said, you guys keep putting shit on us all the time. Oh, bullshit. No, the no, Chinese no, are the ones that no, are putting shit on Australia, no, no, Trevor. But, but no, you ask me, I'm telling you, <laughs> the Chinese are saying, why should we talk to you guys? You keep putting shit on us all the time. So what does Australia do? It, it, it pulls the pin on Victoria's Belt and Road Agreement. Quite what right. What do you think of that? Too, quite rightly. Why is that a good idea? Because agreements with foreign governments are a matter for the Australian federal government. And, 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 and the Victorian government did not uh, ask for permission. They just went ahead and did it and said, here you go, look at this federal government. It's a done deal. We've done it. A done, a done deal for what? For, for nothing in particular. That's but, exactly right. Nothing. But, but a done f- deal for nothing. A not deal yet, over nothing. No, 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 Trevor. It's, it's, it, it has extremely high political significance because the Chinese government can then wave it in front of the government's uh, you know, face and say, see, look at your wonderful liberal democracy. You can't even you know, control your own state leaders. Okay, so it's you're got... A, you're a rabble so it's and you're got, not worth taking seriously. So it's got extreme political significance. Absolute S- propaganda, okay. powerful propaganda okay. significance Okay, so when Australia cancels it, is that also a, a big signal, a big political signal? Yes, it's a big signal to the from the Australian government to the Chinese yeah. saying, yes. deal with us. Right. 
you try and undermine so, us by going behind yeah, our backs so, and doing deals with the so, state so, premiers. So, it's us you've got to deal with. So, so in diplomatic terms... Quite rightly, too. So in diplomatic terms, it's, it's an agreement over nothing... It's not over mission. nothing. You know it's, very well it's no, not over nothing. It was an agreement it, with future potential to for Chinese financing no, no. of infrastructure projects, etc., etc. Et it's, it's an agreement to agree, and an agreement to agree is nothing. But essentially what it was <laughs> is Australia saying, you know that agreement that's completely meaningless? It's not completely meaningless. It's... it's a non-legally binding memorandum of understanding that in the future maybe we might like to do a deal together yeah, which exactly. will always be subject to foreign investment review by the commonwealth yes it doesn't it cannot bypass that so it's merely the state of victoria saying to agreeing with china let's let's investigate in the future possible deals that we might possibly think about possibly entering, such deals always being subject to financial investment review board approval. Sure. That's all it was. That's all a memorandum of understanding. So why did the Andrews government do it in the be first place? Be because in business, when you are trying to create deals, what you do is you approach people and you say, hey, we think in the future we might like to do a deal with you. Let's talk about possibilities so when deals become possible, we might have at least achieved a little bit of groundwork in understanding what each side might want out of a deal. So that when a deal comes up where we're doing something, we'll go, you know what, we're speaking to the Chinese and they actually might be interested in this or whatever. Like it's perfectly normal in business to say, let's have a lunch and let's get to know each other. We don't actually have potential deals right now in place but we're always doing stuff and maybe next year or in five years' time, something will come up and it'll be nice to know what you guys do and what we guys do so if something comes up. That's all a memorandum of understanding is. It's the most innocuous agreement to agree potentially and, and Australia is in a world of trouble with China in terms of trade. Right? In terms of we've lost so much trade with them. And it's all our fault is what you're saying, yeah. right? But, but what happens when you say to China, um, we want to talk to you. Let's talk so we can – and you won't pick up the phone. Oh, I'm trying to talk to China and they won't pick up the phone. I don't know why it's not fair. Oh, by the way, that memorandum of understanding with Victoria, fuck you, it's cancelled. That's, Trevor, that is what they were not that, picking up the phone months and yeah, months before and, and the you, federal government why would you cancelled that. Them to pick it up now, oh, Jesus when Christ. China says all it what was. A, what a hollow argument! What, if they want to do business argument. in the future, Shay's nodding. They can do yes. business at any time. Shay thinks it's at a great any time. Shay thinks they it's a great argument. They don't need to sign and. An, what is you it? Memorandum it a of, argument. of understanding. It was a beautiful argument. They don't need a memorandum <laughs> of understanding. <laughs> Calling it hollow. Belt and Road, which is the signature Communist Party of China program to, you know, basically, you know, get the world under their influence. You can call it hollow, but I think it's a great argument. So okay. we'll agree to disagree. Yeah, like, right. that's the way the world works. And, mm. and when you're trying diplomacy... Here we've got 
our biggest trading partner is China. So what? Our biggest military partner is America. Diplomacy is about let's continue to buy planes and fighters and whatever from America and continue to have a military relationship. Well, at the same time, let's try and sell as much of our stuff to China as we possibly can. That's what diplomacy is. And our government are the worst diplomats on the face of the earth. They are hopeless. Oh, Trevor. Mm. Hopeless. For all the reasons, yes. The worst on the planet, you reckon? They are. Because if you look around the whole ASEAN community... That is such a stupid thing to say, Trevor. If you look at the entire ASEAN community, Australia is the one that's being crunched because of stupid it's diplomatic. not only australia, australia any government any country australia. that crosses the chinese yeah. communist party gets the same treatment but Trevor. You, but you see the other countries in the world in the asian area are they know diplomacy no they and, know the and, power of china and, and their little and countries not being screwed over like we are they because will of be. the stupid diplomatic efforts of this oh, mob bullshit so. trevor that is absolute crap Paul, Australian call, diplomats Paul, raise an are, argument rather than saying hollow or crap, rather than describing it. Why don't you provide the, I've the argument? Chinese history. Yeah. I've studied Chinese yeah. politics. I've studied the history of the Chinese Tell Communist me the argument. Party. Tell me the argument. I know what they're like. Tell me the argument. These people don't have our best interests at heart, Trevor. You haven't addressed the argument, the actual argument I made. You haven't addressed. The argument is that our just, government has a perfect right to control deals with foreign governments. And any deal that the Victorian government does with a Chinese company Mm. is basically dealing with the Chinese government. Because as we know, they're all controlled one way or another Mm. by the Chinese Communist Party. And what did I say about the Memorandum of Understanding being always subject to the Foreign Investment Review Board rules? Yeah, so why did they even bother signing it? So so for the reason I already told you. Well, they can do that at any time. They can do that with individual you know, contracts at any time. Now they don't going, need this, you know, belt and road bullshit. Now we're going around in circles because you won't accept my initial premise of trying to create a business relationship. The business you're not, relationships you're, you're not been accepting, there for decades. You're not accepting my, no, my argument accept it. that it's always subject to foreign investment a, review board It was a rules. pure propaganda so, coup so, on the part of the Chinese Communist Party. That's so, all it was. So it was just the... It was just now the... Uh, Australian government saying, fuck you, and oh, why don't you pick up the phone and talk about trade? Don't, don't know why. Don't Trevor, know why you don't want to talk to you're us. You're putting the, 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 the cart before the horse. They've been trying for the last, what would it be, 12 months or mm. so? Mm. Minister, minister, to minister, mm. To, mm. to talk to the Chinese government, mm. and they have not been picking up the phone for mm. all that time. Mm. When did the mm. federal government cancel the Belt and Road deal? Last Just last week. week. That's yeah. why I'm talking about so it. So there's no link. There's no, 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 no connection. But I've previously talked about the weapons inspector powers and other issues oh, like that. still harping on about no, that. No, Paul, stop. You're saying to me, I, I'm not harping about it because you're saying 12 months ago yeah. it all happened. Why 12 months ago? The answer is because of the weapons inspector powers 12 months ago. That you can't one say, comment. But you can't say now you're harping on about it because you asked me why what happened 12 months ago, and I'm telling you. Yeah, we're talking that about was this one, one comment. One comment. That was not the, the, the guts of the problem but, at all. But, but, Paul, this but thing... But in your mind it apparently was. This thing here, the Belt and Road, yeah. you could say that's just one comment. What? You, you could say, oh, well, that was just one comment to get rid of the Belt and Road. Which comment was that? The one saying no Belt and Road. You could say that was just one issue. Why are they so upset about one issue? 
Why they're so upset? Look, the Chinese are very upset with us because we've stood up mm. on our on our you know on our hind legs yeah. and said, "You don't push us around. We are not your pawns. Mm. We, we we're not here just to supply you with whatever you want and then bend over backwards, you know, to to keep you guys happy. It doesn't work like that. Astro- well, Australia has really, its own interests. We're learning and you really how it works. That, um, and like chi- that that couldn't have been better navigated. That that couldn't have been followed up with some creative policy or some sort of... What does that mean, creative policy? Well, like, Diplomacy. it seems like um, they're just... It does look a bit like blustering. I stand up, stand up to you the and Chinese? there's all this. Do, well, the it's Chinese, just interesting you keep saying that because you said it from a historical context, right? That's where you're taking it. From a historical context, China is bad news, Right. But I was listening the to Chinese a thing today. The Communist Party is, is bad very, news. very bad news. I was listening to a gentleman who's um, some sort of expert on Taiwan and he said from a historical context we can actually be reassured because Taiwan and China have always had this kind of argy-bargy. Oh, so Who's, who is this person? I forget. I'll yeah. find him for well, you look, at the I'm, end. I'm pretty familiar with Chinese history, including But it's the just interesting that from a historical context you can have different interpretations. Puff. So you might need more to substantiate what you're saying than just a historical context. I'm sorry. I've studied the history of the Chinese Communist Party. We all have. No, you haven't. No, I have. I haven't. I have. Probably not to the same depth that I did. In terms of its... in terms, It was oh, about a third oh, oh, of my oh, university oh, oh, degree well, you, was China. You, you just can't say, because I studied Chinese history, yeah, I, know, I, I know understand... That's, that's not a good way to argue a point. better than you. You can't say that. Well... You, you, from, judging from what you say about China but, and Australia, but, Trevor, but, I have to say mm. you don't strike me as particularly well informed. But Paul, you've you've said yourself before you pay no attention to economics. Did I? Yeah, you, you've said you know nothing about economics and you oh, really pay very it, little attention it, to it at an academic level. This is a, that's a, true. This is this is a mixture of politics, economics, history. Well, I'm basing it's, it's my opinion on what I know yeah. about Chinese yeah. history and what I know about the Chinese Communist Party. Yeah. And so, so your biggest complaint about China is they're not buying our stuff. No, that's You're, not their my retaliation complaint. because they're not buying our no, stuff. No, my complaint they're about the Chinese us. Communist Party is that mm. they are fascists. Mm. They are authoritarian mm. fascists mm. who will literally imprison and kill their own citizens for complaining about the leadership. Yeah, but earlier... We do not want those kind of people meddling in our affairs, We want them to buy our stuff. Well... That's what we want them to do. Not at any cost, I'm sorry, but we can find other markets for our stuff. I like Saudi Arabia. And that would have been a great great pathway to take. And it is happening, Shay. I don't know if you're aware of it. Please, inform me. Well, I've heard um, industry spokespeople... On, on television. I think mm. on Landline I heard some guy, some mm. farmer talking about it mm. and he said basically, you know, the, the barley farmers have found other markets. Most of the other industries that were hit have found other markets. It's really only, I think, lobsters and coal are the ones that are still not finding alternative markets. Basically, the rest of them have gotten on with it. That's great. I don't think that's the case. Oh, all right, check it out. Mm. But, it, but it's true. And mm. fully supported by our government to manage mm. that. Or have, well, I they think, had to rely on their entrepreneurship. Well, the industry leaders have their own organisations mm. which um, work together actively, you know, work on finding markets, new and old, and, you know, cultivating them. Mm. 
there's no replacement market for the Chinese market around the world. You don't just, well, don't just crop. There will be. The, you're not going to find a replacement for all the wine that was being sold to China. Oh, wine was another one, sorry. Wine was another one that that hasn't completely uh, found other markets. But a lot of the other agricultural products, in fact, have just gotten on with the job and gone and found other buyers. Yeah. Uh, So the Chinese can go fuck themselves. According to Bob Carr in an article here, since December 2019, barley's been totally lost, coal is down 98%, wine 97%, crustaceans 89%, beef 47%. Well, he's not so, right about barley yeah. because I heard a, 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 mm. a farmer talking mm. about it and he said basically they've, mm. they've found buyers for most of the barley. Mm. At, at what price? I, I have mm. no idea. Mm. But they wouldn't be selling it at a loss. Mm. Might be selling it cheap. Well, it might be cheap, but mm. it's still sold and there's, you know, they're still making a profit, aren't they, surely? Maybe there is. Hopefully. I don't know. Don't know, Paul. Let's see. If, show us. But Co- look, covering you know, loss. I mean, you don't mm. just... You know, give up all your values to sell stuff. Do you? What's the value we're giving up? Sovereignty. They haven't attacked us. Not yet. But but what is the value we've given up? What what by selling them stuff? What is the value we've given up? Well, what you know, we we agreed to sell them stuff, and then when they got their noses out of joint, they said. We're not going to buy your stuff there. How do you like that? I mean, what kind of mature trading relationship is that? And is that the worst thing they've it's done? It's childish and spiteful. And, you know, is, if, is if peop, you know, if you're going to do business with people like that, you really don't have a, a very, you know, relaxed, secure, comfortable, you know, working trading relationship, do you? Is that the worst thing they've done to stop buying your stuff? No, it isn't. To you, us? What's the know, worst thing? You know very well what's, that... What's the worst thing they've done to us? According to the government, they've been relentlessly trying to hack our uh, computer systems, you know, of, mm. of government departments, universities, probably big companies. Do we spy on them? Uh, probably not to the isn't same it, extent. But isn't it... If we could, would we? I'm not sure. Isn't spying on each other fair, fair game? Don't we have a pine gap so we can spy on people? Pine gap, I don't think, is for spying. It's for communications, for satellite and submarine communications or something like that. We don't like know what that. goes on there because we're not allowed in. Well, we but, don't. That's but, true. But don't, isn't that fair game to spy? Oh, Trevor, you keep trying to justify all the evil shit that the Chinese do because, after all, don't we do it too? I mean, that's really, really a naive view, Trevor, if you don't mind me saying. It's just consistency. If you're going to bag somebody for something you do yourself, then people in glass houses shouldn't throw stones. Does that adage mean anything? Uh, Joe had a good one before about the moat. The moat and the boats. <laughs> we better move on because Anne in the chat room says this argument is totally deranged with a sad face. <laughs> oh, yeah, well. <laughs> All right. Uh, let's skip over that one. Let's go to um, Prince Philip. He passed away without enough mention, I feel, yeah. just briefly. Um, without enough mention? Yes, from what? us. Oh, from us. Yes. Just... Uh, oh. There was that lady, Jenny Hocking, who managed under Freedom of Information to recover a lot of the letters sent between John Kerr and oh, the yes. Queen. And got She's that. a she historian fought. of some yes. sort. Yes, so she had quite a battle to get those. Mm. And um, 
anyway, she wrote an article in the Jean Menadieu blog where it said, you know, now that Prince Philip has died, people are sort of rewriting history about him as a sort of a, a bit of a roguish character who everybody loved mm. when maybe he wasn't quite that roguish and lovable. Um, interesting here, uh, Prince Philip, the senior Nazi positions of his sisters and brothers-in-law banned from his wedding to Princess Elizabeth in 1947. Uh were hidden in the oblique melange of German relatives or family connections. So I always heard of him as Phil the Greek, but I didn't know he had the Nazi connection mm. with his family. Oh, yeah. yeah. Mm. Mm. So there we go. Not only and, German, but mm. there were, what were they, Joe? Were they Danish or something like that? His, parts of his family? Part were Greek and... Yes, and Danish, yes. All of the royal families of Europe are interbred. Yes, yes. yes. indeed. I mean, the First World War was between three cousins. Right. Yes. Family disputes are the most bitter. Exactly. <laughs> a couple of million died, but it's an usual family scoreboard. Yeah. What, what I heard was because it was so soon after the end of the Second World War, they thought it was a bad look to invite yes. Germans, yes. didn't they? Just a yeah. bad looking night. It was a bad looking 1947 <laughs> to invite Nazis. <laughs> well, they weren't all Nazis, but probably they'd, a few of them were. They'd been members of the Nazi party. Yes. And in fact... Um, Had they really? Yeah, well, it wasn't senior Nazi positions of his sisters and brothers-in-law. Oh. But but wasn't the um, uh, abdicated king flirting with Nazism as well? I yes, I don't know. Right, according to the TV show The Crown, yes. Right. <laughs> uh, uh, aside from that, I've heard rumours that he was certainly interested in how the Germans were running things, and it seemed to be a very well-run country. Right, mm. yeah. Possibly a little misguided. Admiration for German efficiency. Yeah, basically. <laughs> uh, what else about Prince Philip? Um, when the Queen declared him a prince in 1957, that lifted him beyond the range of a subpoena. So he's not subject to British laws as such. And... The same applies to Prince Andrew, which is particularly significant given his current predicament, <laughs> being a prince. Indeed. Can't hit him with a subpoena. Mm. Mm. Uh, and they're also exempt from freedom of information laws in the royal family. So, um, And he didn't get on well with Gough Whitlam. No. And Who, Andrew? Uh, prince Philip. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, um, so, yeah, interesting article there. Um, and have you heard about Charlie's alleged son? Does he have one? Yeah, no. some, somebody in Australia is alleging that um, Charlie and Camilla had had a child out of wedlock really? before Diana's wedding. Really? And that he is the oldest of Charles's children. Wow, I haven't heard that. Yeah. And he's posed for photographs with them Gosh. looking younger, as in a collage of the, the three, mm. going, look at the facial similarities, can't you see it? Where was this? Mm. Where were you reading this? It keeps what? coming up in my news feed. I don't, I don't know, know why. What, yeah, it's never appeared in mine. Okay. So. <laughs> Nor mine. Yeah. Seems somebody's, a bit of a stretch, but... So, well, somebody's yeah. targeting you, Joe. Obviously. Mm. <laughs> uh, dear listener, one of the things I do here is subscribe to a number of right-wing news outlets like the Korean Mail and the Australian, so I've got a broad view of what's going on. And, and the Spectator. And the Spectator, yes. And... 
Some of these groups are actually really difficult to unsubscribe from, and the News Corp is one of those where you can't just go into an account and click unsubscribe. You've got to ring the buggers up to do it. Mm. It's quite difficult. And the Chaser, who we quote regularly, have got a service where if you are a News Corp subscriber and you just can't be bothered waiting on the phone a couple of hours to cancel your subscription, you can they do it for you. So they... You send them your details and uh, and give them an authority that they prepare, and they ring up and cancel News Corp subscriptions for you. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, what, um, you can also that? get delisted off the Catholic Church as a similar mob who do something. Is there t- to get unbaptized because apparently they won't take you off the rolls unless you demand in forms in triplicate. Right. Um, can you send me a link to that? If you, I'll have to find it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I was thinking the Noosa Temple of Satan might offer that service as well. <laughs> mm. So that's right. It's not easy to get off the roll. Yeah. So mm. I'm on the roll at a church in St. Joseph's, Kangaroo Point. So that's where I was baptised. I was mm. in grade two at the time. You've heard this story? No. And... So we were living at Spring Hill and going to this place at Kangaroo Point. My mother wanted us to go to a Catholic school for the discipline. And I was in grade two, my brother was in grade three, and somehow the nuns found out we weren't baptised. God. I said, you've got to get these kids baptised. And she said, They're well... They're polluting the school ground. That's right. <laughs> so they said to my mother, you've got to get these kids baptised. And she said, well, I don't, I don't care. Why? If you, yeah. if you want to baptise, you do it. <laughs> so one afternoon, my brother and I were hauled out of class. Really? And a couple of grade seven students were nominated as our godparents. What? And we went into the church and we were baptised with a couple of grade seven students as our godparents. A surrogate godparent. And my parents, wow. my parents were not anywhere to be seen. That is bizarre, isn't it? Yes. That is just bizarre. Yes. Ugh. I waved at them in the school grounds a couple of times. I hope they're proud of how I've turned out. <laughs> <laughs> Your that's, godparents. Catholic Church, this, that's what happens when you put grade seven kids in charge of the moral upbringing <laughs> of a kid in grade two. They turn it's, into Satanists. It serves you, it serves <laughs> you right. Could, could have been worse. It could have been a nun. <laughs> so, yeah, true story. So, wow. Yeah. I'm sort of keen to do the renunciation just to sort of see the entry in the role um, you should yeah. do it publicly yes. in front of that very uh, yeah. church can, can, or chapel. Yes. Walk yeah. in and um, denounce the Holy Spirit because apparently that's the one unforg- unforgivable sin. Is it? Apparently. <laughs> I've, com- I've, committed, I've committed a few other worse ones <laughs> in recent times. No, you haven't, Trevor. Oh, I don't no, know. that's the worst one. Right. I don't know. <laughs> um, right. Tyranny of merit. This will go on a fair bit. This will be a bit of a monologue, dear listener, but I find this concept interesting. It comes from a book by Michael Sandel, The Tyranny of Merit. The Tyranny of Merit. And this is, uh, yeah, I've summarised for you so you don't have to read all um, 275-odd pages of it. So Thank you. Yeah. Okay, Introduction. Uh, Ronald Reagan, Margaret Thatcher, they argued government is the problem and markets are the solution. Clinton and Blair and Obama and the New Left embraced open markets 
provided there was an opportunity for everyone to compete in the market and therefore get what they deserve. Americans have great faith in the possibility of upward mobility. It's at the heart of the American dream, but it just actually isn't true. In terms of upward mobility, um, Americans rank well behind lots of other OECD countries. So social mobility in America is restricted. It's actually terrible. The, the American dream is alive and well in Denmark, if you want to look at social mobility. I don't know. Any, any billionaire can become a president. Yes, that's right. <laughs> so um, so he, in the book, paints a picture where um, there's no real meritocracy. But even if there was, if it was possible to have a meritocracy, would it be good is his question. And uh, he says the winners in a meritocracy hold a smug conviction that they deserve their fate through their talent and their hard work, while losers are looked down on by the winners and by the losers who kind of see themselves also as undeserving. Both sides, the winners and the losers, lose sight of luck and fortune and the common fate in this sort of um, false vision we have of a, uh, of a merit of a meritocracy. So he says, hiring people based on merit makes sense. Rewarding people based on merit seems fair. It seems non-discriminatory. It encourages productivity and it matches our sense that people should get what they deserve. So how could a meritocracy possibly be bad? So he argues, how did we come to this view of meritocracy is kind of through religious conditioning, actually. So he says, we've been conditioned by our culture into thinking people get what they deserve and it started with religion. If you look at biblical theology, it taught that good and bad events were aligned with favouring or displeasing God. Yep. Uh, God doled out punishments or rewards in response to our deeds and we are seen as earning our fate and that led to harsh attitudes towards those that suffered misfortune. They must have displeased God and therefore deserve it. Contrast that with the book of Job. I love the book of Job. Um, it's going to be, it's the lesson number one in our satanic religious instruction classes, the book of Job. Love mm. it. Um, Did you ask permission to use it? From, uh, from, from the, God. From the Bible. <laughs> so, so in the book of Job, dear listener, uh, for those of you who are not familiar, uh, Job is on earth, he's quite wealthy, he's got several wives and slaves and abundant crops and God is looking down and saying, look at my faithful servant Job, he loves me, he's, he adores me, he worships me and the devil says, well that's just because he's doing so well. If he wasn't doing so well, he wouldn't be so enamoured with you. And the God, God says, well, that's not right. And, and says to the devil, well, okay, you've got free reign to test Job. So the devil is given the license to kill his wives and children, ruin his crops, um, cause Job to have these festering sores and pus all over his body. Mm. And, um, and, and Job starts to question, oh, God, oh, God, you know, why have you done this to me? And his colleagues are sort of like, Job, what did you do? Like, if you've, this, you must have been doing some really bad shit for this fate to befall you sort of thing. Mm. And um, uh, uh, it's a really good 
view, this, just digressing momentarily, for the satanic religious instruction classes, at that point we stop and we say, who's the really evil character here? Is it <laughs> Satan who's the one who's done this stuff? Or was it the God who, hang on, in order to test his servant Job, gives a licence to Satan to do that stuff? But, but God mm. gives him a brand new family, so it's all okay. That's right. In the end, God does regenerate him with a new family, new wives. And, I mean, he didn't miss the old ones at all. He just, yeah. Yes, yeah. In, in part of the ranting about it, though, um, God says, um, he says, um, it rains in places where there are no crops. God's ways are more mysterious than straight merit-based reward system. God renounces a cosmic meritocracy and teaches Job that faith means acceptance of God without expecting God to dispense rewards and punishments. So the book of Job is a little bit of an outlier in that sort of sense where um, uh, it's a great story. Anyway, so you've got salvation and you've got self-help, which creates a conundrum. So if God rewards or punishes behaviour then it takes away God's omnipotence in that he's compelled to follow the rules and his power is somewhat limited. But if salvation is an unearned gift, then why allow evil to exist if he has the power to prevent it and evil is not needed as a sorting tool of a merit system? Allowing unnecessary evil would be unjust. So that's one of the sort of inherent problems with religion of the salvation versus self-help. Another conundrum is free will. One view is God gave us free will, so our suffering is not evil, but rather punishment. We're just being punished because we've exercised our free will in a certain direction. He doesn't give a lot of choices, though, does he? So, well, <laughs> but Augustine denied free will as it denied the omnipotence of God and salvation is by grace alone. So some of these people really hate the idea that God has to, if you're good or bad, the idea that God has to follow and calculate and be bound by what you've done is an affront to the omnipotence of God. Well, that's Protestant theology. Is. Yes, exactly. We're getting there. These are all good ideas um, about religion. Um, so, But despite Augustine, the practices of the church emphasise merit. Prayers and rituals were seen as buying favour. So the Protestant, Refor the Protestant Reformation was seen as arguing against merit. Salvation was through faith. Uh, but paradoxically, it's the Protestant Reformation that has led to the fiercely meritocratic work ethic of the Puritans. So what we've got is Calvinists believed in predestination, meaning it didn't matter what you did, you may or may not go to heaven. It was pre ordained predestination yep. and um this re this created unbearable suspense people were like i really want to know whether i'm going to be favored or not surely then they all have moral license to go out and do what they wanted well no well so how did one know if one was going to be saved and the answer that they came across was that since every person is called by god to work in a vocation Working intensely in that calling is a sign of salvation. So the purpose of the work is not to enjoy wealth, but to glorify God. Um, 
So it combined hard work with minimal consumption. And this approach accumulated wealth, which fueled capitalism. That's an interesting idea. But basically, what they were saying is, if you have got a great vocation and you're hardworking, it's not because of that that you enter heaven and are saved. It's just that that's probably a good sign that God has chosen you. Mm. People, of course, began to confuse that and over time came to the view, well, if you work hard and have a vocation, then that does get you into heaven as a deserved entry rather than as a sign of what was already predetermined. So um, if the religious motivation falls away, you can still be left with the relic of hard work and minimal consumption as a cultural base for capitalism. Over time, successful vocation moved from being a sign of predestined salvation to a source of salvation. So just as the Jews relied on a meritocratic reward for observance of the law, and the Catholics had a similar thing, a reward for observing rites and sacraments, the Protestants adopted a meritocratic reward for vocational duty. And this unleashed a torrent of anxious and energetic striving. So the notion today is that you can can succeed by your own effort, and those who succeed deserve their success. So... As an, uh, a writer, Max Weber, observed, the fortunate person is seldom satisfied with the fact of being fortunate. Beyond this, he needs to know that he has a right to his good fortune. He wants to be convinced that he deserves it, and above all, that he deserves it in comparison with others. He wishes to be allowed the belief that the less fortunate also merely experience their due. So... This way of thinking sanctifies the winners, denigrates the losers. And because of this, we've equated success or failure with individual moral responsibility and lost sight of the unpredictable nature of fortune and fate. And in recent years, American Christianity has codified this into the prosperity gospel. So we've got this rhetoric of rising. If you work hard and play by the rules, you should be given a chance to go as far as your God-given ability will take you. And President Obama used that sort of phrase more than all previous presidents combined. Hmm. And Trump never used it once. This was, if you work hard and play by the rules, you should be given a chance to go as far as your God-given ability will take you. If you have a go, you'll get a go. That's it. Exactly. Um, Trump never used that. Trump, Trump was like... Trump's not a Christian. Yeah, but he was... It's interesting. Obama mm. used it more than any previous president and Trump never used it. Really interesting that Trump never used it. Mm. It's pretty obvious that Trump has precious little interest in religion. Yeah, but even the notion of work hard and, and you'll um, play by the rules and you'll get to aspire to mm. a, a deserved position was not a Trump mantra no you get given it by your daddy he was angry and he he was like those other people are just rotters who hate you and call you deplorable and you've got the right to be angry and fight against them he was had a point there he did he wasn't aspirational in the in that sense he was Mm. you've got the right to be angry and this ties in with a bit more in this book so credentialism the last acceptable prejudice So the left abandoned equality. They pursued free markets and mobility, but not equality. 
They offered education as the key to mobility, but that ignored what was happening in the real economy. Workers lost power to negotiate due to globalisation and monopoly power and labour rules. The problem was worker power, not worker smarts. The education mantra was a moral fantasy that required the left to confront no one. Basically the Obama thing of just get yourself educated and work hard and, and you'll climb up above the pack really... Why is that a moral fantasy? Um, because uh, it, it was a fantasy because not only some can be educated to climb above the pack and reach the upper echelon, There's, it leaves the pack of uneducated behind. So, but it's a matter of degree, isn't it? Not yeah. everybody can be CEO. Hmm. Not everybody can be president. But a yep. lot of people can improve their lot in life through education. Uh, but financially, um, if everybody has a university degree... And you have then, street sweepers who have university degrees. Yes. Look, not everybody so, needs a university degree to be educated, you know. Do they? Well, that's the context we're using education in, in terms of getting a better job for financial ability to climb above the pack for a, a better but surely financial for, life. For some people, that education takes the form of a technical education rather than an less so. Yeah, these and not days, everyone and not everyone one. can be a motor mechanic. Is no, it, it's, but but somebody who's been educated to the level where they can become a, a motor mechanic is surely more likely to have a you know, a good life with enough money uh, for their needs if they're a motor mechanic than if they never finished high school. Yeah, yeah, but the point is not everyone can have a technical trade or a higher vocation because there are jobs that not everyone can, can do that. It's, it's a mantra of if you educate yourself, you'll climb above the pack in a race where everyone's scrambling over the top of each other because the bottom of the pack is just minimum wage. Yep. So that's the sort of issue. It, it never confronted that the bottom of the pack is on minimum wage and struggling. It never looked at we need to raise the minimum wage to a decent level and lift the bottom of the pack. It was a mantra of, of if you educate yourself, you'll get off the bottom where the rats are scrambling around and you'll get to the top above them, was essentially the vision that, that the left took on because they abandoned the poor working class and said, well, you guys didn't get a job and you didn't get yourself educated, so mm -hmm. you deserve $7.50 an hour. Mm -hmm. So let me keep going, but that's the sort of um, theory that we're on here. So, um, by the way, Ivy League education does not necessarily lead to great results. JFK had smart people who led America into the folly of the Vietnam War and Obama's advisors bailed out Wall Street. And there were some really interesting examples of education here in this book at page 100, looking at the background of the people who launched the New Deal, um, FDR's New Deal. This was to end the Depression. Okay. Uh, Harry Hopkins, Roosevelt's closest confidant, was a social worker from Iowa. Robert Jackson, U.S. Attorney General, um, was a lawyer who had no law degree. Um, Jesse Jones, who ran Roosevelt's bailout program, was a businessman from Texas. 
who had no qualms about putting the nation's most prominent financial institutions into receivership. It goes on. Just some other groups. 1945, Clement Attlee's Labor Party. Seven of his ministers had worked as coal miners. Amazing. The, the UK mm. Labor Party, that doesn't surprise me. Yeah. 1945, seven of his ministers had worked as coal miners. The health minister, Anurin Bevan, who had left school at 13 and worked as a miner in Wales, led the creation of Britain's National Health Service. Hmm. So this sort of little aside as to whether a formal technical education, you can still be educated without. I doubt very much that any coal miner would become a government minister now because, simply because of the complexity of what they have to do. Coal mining, absolutely. No, I mean <laughs> ministering. Yeah, but we've argued before, like I, like Jackie Lambie like, gets a lot wrong, but I actually think she's got a lot more smarts than a lot of the other educa- the, so-called educated I've got ministers. a good role for Jackie Lambie, mm. foreign minister. Mm. She'd sort out the business with China overnight. Mm. I don't know. Possibly. I, I, has she got a position on China? She's, 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 hang on, she served no, in the I forces. Don't, I don't She'd know. be the last person to get us into a war. Indeed. Mm. That's right. She would understand the impact. Yeah. War yeah, is not yeah. always a matter of, you know, people saying, hey, let's have a war, it'll be really great. You know, doesn't doesn't happen like that, I'm afraid. Anyway, we've digressed, but I've actually, um, okay, you know, Jackie Lambie is our coal miner, really, Mm. of today. Canary in the coal mine. That's it. Okay. um, College-educated elites have more bias against less educated than other disavowed groups, and they are unembarrassed by their prejudice, according to this. Um, So they wouldn't for a moment dis a black person or a gay person or a trans person, but they're more likely to turn their nose up at an uneducated person. Mm. That sort of has a ring of truth to it. Mm. It's a generalisation though, isn't it? I mean, uh, there'd be a footnote for this. So if a study shows that, would you be okay with that? Maybe. Okay. Um, and the uneducated know this. They know that the educated are sneering at them. them. Sneering yeah. at them. And the deplorables knew that um, Clinton, um, Hillary, was sneering at them. She definitely was. Yeah. Um, So, and like Morrison now when he talks about, well, you don't solve these problems in the wine bars and cheese bars of uh, inner city CBD, whatever, he's really sending a dog whistle to the uneducated that those people sneer at you and think Mm. they've got the answers. Mm. That's his sort of dog whistle to that sort of thought process. Right. Um, Incidentally, when it came to Trump, electoral studies showed that education, not income, best predicted support for Trump. Lack of education, most likely, you know, a good indicator of voting for Trump, and even more than wealth. I've heard people say that in the last election, um, the number of, non-white Americans who voted for Trump increased mm. and the number of, you know, the people that everybody was saying, you know, Trump hates and would never, ever align themselves with Trump, actually a lot of them voted for Trump yep. because they? they saw the alternative as worse. Well, were they uneducated? No idea. Yeah, well, this is saying like black people who they are uneducated. They could have been un- uneducated. So black people who, for example, you would think 
why would they vote for Trump? Because he's clearly a racist. But Is if he? they were uneducated, they would be more likely to than an educated black. That's the theory. Um, previously, the uneducated voted for the left and the educated voted for the right. Now that has swapped. And this is happening in the USA, the UK, and France. But the wealthy still vote for the right. So that is why uh, the left has ignored the problem of inequality. Meanwhile, the uneducated resent globalisation that elites promote and turn to populist nativists. So the left has been using technocratic language and talked of smart technology and smart regulatory framework, but this glides over the tough moral and political questions. Like it's, it is like Obama saying, oh, get yourself educated, pull yourself up, you'll be able to achieve, in, provided everyone's got an opportunity. It just glides over the fact, hey, we need to increase the minimum wage from $7.50 to something higher. Learn to code. Mm. Hmm? Learn to and code. Learn to code, yes. Yeah. Um, if you had a meritocracy or an aristocracy, which is better? So if you knew you were going to be placed in the top group, in a meritocracy, or you knew you were going to be placed in the top group of an aristocracy, which would you prefer? And this guy says, well, if you knew you were going to be in the top, you might prefer the meritocracy because of the sense of achievement you would have. Mm. But if you knew you were going to be in the bottom group, and they said, well, you're going to be in the bottom. It's your choice. You can be on merit meritocracy island or aristocracy island, and but you're going to be in the bottom which one do you choose? You would probably choose the aristocracy because um, life might be hard, but you would not be burdened by the thought that you were responsible for your subordinate position. Hmm. I, I don't know that a meritocracy, I'd be sat there with self-doubt going, I didn't really deserve this. I lucked into this. People, though, are not understanding how the system has worked against them to keep them down to a large extent. I'm going to get onto that. But people are actually not appreciating how much luck and fate has gone into their own poor luck and their own poor fate, surprisingly. Well, um, uh, Michael Moore argued that the reason Europeans and Americans were so different mm. was Europeans recognised that they'll never be rich right. and therefore they're willing to vote for higher taxes for the rich because they'll never be rich. There you go. They're not conned by the... American dream. You could one day be rich and therefore yeah. you shouldn't vote against things that will be in, yes. against you in 20 years' time. Mm -hmm. I think there's something in that. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, would a perfect meritocracy be just? A meritocracy doesn't fix inequality. It just justifies a form of inequality. So what is the moral status of talent? Having a talent is a matter of luck. Whether society values my talents at any particular time is also a matter of luck. So you could look at someone like LeBron James. At this particular point in history, being that tall and able to jump and dunk a basketball is a really valuable skill. But if he was born in the 15th century, maybe not so valuable. <laughs> <laughs> yep. You could have found some interesting job probably yep, yep. that required you to be tall. Yep, but maybe not that got him the <laughs> enormous wealth that he's got as a result today. So hard work is often required, but hard work without talent will not succeed. Also, some argue that the ability to work hard and persevere is also a matter of luck, like it's actually a part of your DNA and also your environment, your ability to work hard. Well, if you're not talent. sick. Mm. Yep. 
So uh, Frederick Hayek, the Austrian economist and the inspiration for Margaret Thatcher, he said reward reflected supply and demand and had nothing to do with merit. But he used this to reject a redistributive taxation. He was just quite happy for that to work out the way it did in Winners and Losers. Mm. As a philosopher, Rawls recognised that luck uh, played a big part in having talent and a work ethic. But he used that to suggest there should be redistributive taxation. So, uh, so Rawls makes a good argument as to why the rich are not morally deserving of the wealth and why it's okay to take some off them. But he doesn't really make a good case of why the community has a good reason to grab it off the wealthy. So... This guy in this book says modern welfare liberals are like rules. They argue that the negative claim but not the positive claim. So the negative claim is that it is justified to take money off the rich because it's just been basically a matter of luck to a large extent of, as to whether people are rich or not. And he's going to argue a positive case soon. Um, uh, so there's a guy, Michael Young, he said, in a society that makes so much of merit, it's hard to be judged as having none. No underclass has ever been left as morally naked as that. So liberal elites fail to see how galling it is to attribute white privilege to disempowered white working class men and women. I think that's a really mm. key point out of all this. Um, liberals offer distributive justice, meaning we'll take some money off the rich and give it to you poor. But what these people really want is social recognition and esteem. Uh, it's our role as producers, not consumers, that we contribute to the common good and win recognition for doing so. Aristotle argued that human flourishing depends on realising our nature through the cultivation and exercise of our abilities. And essentially his conclusion is that it's not good enough just to take money off the rich because they were lucky and just give it to the poor. People's self-worth comes from actually working and producing and contributing. So really you need to create jobs with value or, or pay people a value for a menial job so that they will feel like they are contributing to society and then they'll be happy. So rather than just giving it to them as a gift, as in you're a useless, unproductive person without merit, take this money to keep you off the street. It is more a case of, well, we need our uh, more menial jobs or less fancy jobs to have a decent pay rate. You can have this job and earn a decent living and contribute to society. Sort of the positive side of it. So I think the positive claim is mm. you take someone, stick them on a desert island, mm. what is their worth? Mm. It's whatever food they can gather and whatever oh. home they can build mm -hmm. and anything else they gain is through society mm. and, and therefore anything they gain over and above clothing and shelter is given to them by society. Mm. And they haven't earned that. Society has given them the, the tools to gain that. Mm. I've got a separate article here from Evonomics, which gives a really good example of Gutenberg. So Johannes Gutenberg invented the printing press, 1439. 
Most of us would agree, I think, that the printing press amounts to an invention at least as important as Google. Yet Gutenberg did not become a billionaire. Gutenberg didn't get extremely rich because the world economy in the 15th century was simply too small and too fragmented to support any billionaire fortunes. They didn't have a billion people all around the world with a dollar to spare towards printing equipment. So every billionaire's wealth today depends on having access to a large population that's linked through a globalised economy. The more this global economy grows, the richer our billionaires get. This growth happens independently from any one individual's effort and talent. So we can't say that billionaires deserve the profits that go hand in hand with economic growth. Really good example, I But think. neither can you say that they don't deserve it. Well, actually, it's how you, how you judge deserving. I agree. And what he's saying in this book is, is it through merit? Because of their God-given talents, they achieve these things. He's saying, well, that's just luck. It's partly luck and partly and, whatever talents they have and whatever they do with those talents, yeah. isn't it? Uh, also, there's a, uh, a calculation done in this article which says that... Um, uh, it looked at how much of billionaire wealth came from inheritance and from cronyism and from monopoly power. And essentially, they looked at billionaires and what industries they were in and traced 65% of the world's billionaire wealth to cronyism, inheritance and monopoly. It just wasn't related to talent. And you could... Find the other 35% relied a lot on the globalisation that meant that Gutenberg didn't make an enormous fortune compared to today's modern billionaires, so who are relying on what society has, has provided them. So, um, And just to finish on this one, don't know if anyone's still listening in the chat room. They might have all abandoned us at this stage. Um, but anyway, I really like this concept. So, Hear the story from so, me. So suck it up. Anyway, we're on the we're in the home straight on this one. Do people in Britain resent the rich? Um, yes. According to a new study published this week, the answer is not really. So this was in the UK. It explored public attitudes towards wealth based on focus groups held across England. And it said that most people are relatively content with people getting rich and that attacks on the wealthy are often viewed negatively. And this presents a dilemma for progressives. One response um, is to accept the belief that Britain is a meritocracy. It's ingrained in our collective psyche and just adjust policies and narratives accordingly. This would mean ditching a class war rhetoric and instead putting forward solutions designed to appeal to a meritocratic worldview, which might mean closing tax loopholes and, and increasing taxes based on fairness and efficiency. And that's going to chime in with people's existing attitudes towards wealth. But in this article, it's saying that that's a bit of a cop-out. Really, um, uh, you should try and change the narrative of people's thinking and to say that, well, actually... Uh, it is a class issue. 
So Margaret Thatcher's neoliberal revolution wasn't just successful because it reorganised the economy, it was successful because it embedded a particular narrative about how wealth is created and distributed. So long as there is sufficient competition and free markets, every individual will receive their just rewards. It's a world where businesses are the wealth creators who create jobs and drive innovation and business owners are entitled to the financial rewards of success, regardless of how enormous they are. So um, that, of course, bears little resemblance to how the economy actually works. So the economy in practice, the distribution of wealth, has little to do with contribution and everything to do with politics and power. So um, people need to start understanding how people make their money and become billionaires is not really through talent and hard work. There's lots of other factors of luck and for the vast majority of cases, it's 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 exercising control through monopoly power and through um, and through cronyism, as it's described in these other articles. So, and even if you look at somebody completely honest, maybe in the tech industry or something, or you look at Apple and Steve Jobs, and you say, "Look, Steve Jobs, what a great inventor! You know, deserves no, what was what was what's that? Steve Wozniak was the inventor. Well, either one of them. If you say <clears throat> he was a marketer, wasn't he? You say, yeah. look at at least they invented the iPhone. You, you know, we all love it. You've got to give them credit for all that. But when mm. you actually look at the technology of the iPhone, almost every single element of an iPhone was created through government programs, DARPA in particular, and other government entities who spent the money, did the research, created the stuff, and. Okay, he put it all together in a nice iPhone, but the real invention part of it all was uh, actually came through the community, the common, the common, uh, the common mm. good actually developed. But the all community of that. certainly also mm. benefits, in, indeed, from having prosperous companies in the community that mm. employ people, you know, make lots of money, get taxed. That tax I, I goes back sure. to the. Of course, but we can't look at a billionaire. People today will look at a billionaire and say, oh, the billionaire deserves it. If he's made his money, good luck to him, he gets to keep it. And it doesn't recognise that that billionaire has actually a billionaire because we haven't charged the billionaire enough. It's like Gina Reinhart. The reason Gina Reinhart is so wealthy is that we sold our, our iron ore to her too cheap. We didn't mm. extract enough from her Agreed. and she got it too cheap. And that's, and that's also what's happening with billionaires in other industries where we're saying, we've set up this amazing civilization that has allowed you to sell, to design one widget and sell a million of them mm. easily. Mm. You need to pay us for that. Mm. And we don't charge those people enough. That's Game that's Mates what's was talking about um, property development. Mm. And the, the value in property development is the change of land use. Yes. Which is granted by councils to private developers and the gain goes to the private developer. Yes. And where in Canberra you have leasehold, mm. um, the, the gain in value goes to the landowner, which is the government. Yes. So any property gain, or sorry, any gain in the value of the property goes back to the government, yep. which is given back into the citizens. Mm. So there you go. It's a very socialist, communist view on one point, but it's also a, a, actually a reality check on how the system actually works. And I find it quite interesting, the whole 
meritocracy argument. So it's a, it's a little bit over egg, though. I mean, nobody, I don't think anybody in their right mind claims that any of our societies are perfect merit, meritocracies. They are works in progress, surely. Did I say it was? No, but did, this, did he say it was? It, it sounds like he's saying no. meritocracy. You're no. all dreaming. No, he said that the big part of his book is there's no such thing as a meritocracy, and even if you could have one, it's not just. It's not just. Yeah. Okay. But is it not not more just than other alternatives? Uh, what, well, what he's suggesting is you like need a socialist to, utopia. Uh, he's he's <laughs> saying that um, inequality is a problem, and that a meritocracy does not fix inequality. And he's saying that rather than just giving money to the poor as a welfare check, you really need to basically create a minimum wage so that when the poor are working, they're actually getting a livable, proper wage that allows them to be proper members mm. of the community. That's, that they have that's, some that, dignity in their life. Exactly. Mm. That, that is his argument. So, and that's exactly what the government keeps telling us. There is dignity in work. Uh, yes. Um, and that they're about creating jobs rather than just handing out money to people. That's, uh, they say that over and over yeah, and over. Yeah, but a, job, don't. but a job also has to be a job with value. I mean, there are workers in America on poultry processing lines who wear nappies because they cannot take time off to go to the toilet. But that's not meritocracy. That's about no, no, labour law. I didn't say it was meritocracy. I said it's about jobs have to be real jobs. So mm. when a government says, oh, we've created X number of jobs, well, the question is, was it a good job? Was it a job that actually paid a proper wage was it a job where you've actually got to have two jobs to make a living? If it's just a crappy job, then it's not a job. I agree. Yeah, so rather than minimum way. wage, you need a living wage. Yes. Mm. Well, well the a, minimum a, a minimum wage. wage has to be a living wage, yes. a, a, a decent wage. And there was a formula, wasn't there, back in the 19... When was it? 30s or 20s when the Australian government came up with this idea of a living wage? When was that? Yeah. Was that after the Depression perhaps or during the Depression when they realised that people just having a job wasn't enough? And they had this idea that a, a working man, because they usually were men, the breadwinners of the family in those right. days, a working man should be able to earn enough to support himself, a wife and, what was it, two or three kids or something mm. like that. Mm. And they called that... The living wage, I yes. think. Yeah. And we used to have an annual review of the wage system with every year it was like a two or three percent increase mm. to the minimum wage that was the sort accord of well, yeah, it was good everybody was sort of aware of it. Mm. So anyway. Um, it went up sixty cents in the past year. Right. Wow. So it was nineteen dollars twenty four and it's mm. nineteen eighty four or something now. Certainly right. beats but, the US. Mm. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Mm. Yeah. Although with exchange rates, what's the US minimum? Do they have a minimum wage yet? Uh, seven dollars. Yeah, seven dollars something. Seven dollars fifty. Yeah. And yeah. and uh, I believe some states are talking about some cities anyway have talked about making it fifteen dollars if they haven't already. Yeah. Some waiter staff are on two dollars fifty plus tips. Mm. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, American waiters live on their tips. Yeah. Mm. 
So I hate that system. I Same. hate the tipping system. Oh, but, but, you know, you get wonderful service. They're so subservient. <laughs> They're terrible service. <laughs> Worst service you'll ever get. Really? Oh, it is. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. I've I, had some terrible service been... in America. Mm. It doesn't mm. guarantee you great service. No. no. Um, yeah. Right. So anyway, we must be close to 909. We've kept... Shay away from the shark tank yet again. Landon will be happy. There we go. We've had a good argument over China. We've had a bit of a dig at Scott Morrison and we've finished off with a philosophical meritocracy argument. Mm. If that didn't keep you happy, I'm sorry. Find another podcast. But but Trevor, are you not in favour of the idea of a meritocracy? Uh, I'm saying the idea of a meritocracy has serious problems because... It doesn't take into account luck and fate and good fortune um, the way um, as much as it should. That's the, the idea of merit that your talents will get you to your position uh, has some serious flaws to it. Well, it doesn't always get you that position, but surely a system where People are rewarded for their merit rather than whose son or daughter they are or who so, okay. they know. Here it is. It's it's a meritocracy, but the top and bottom have to be adjusted. There should under a Trevor Bell system of government, there are no billionaires. Like, in fact, once you get to five hundred million in wealth, you get handed a Cartier watch yes. and and a and a certificate that says congratulations. You've reached the end of your wealth creation aspect of your life mm-hmm. and you can now stop because uh, beyond that, you're dangerous. You've got way too much money and you're dangerous. And at and the, the bottom, dictator who made that law isn't dangerous. No, because I'm saying to those people, guess what? The reason you got to $500 million was because of what the, common, the commons provided you and the reason Gina Reinhart's got to sixteen billion is because she wasn't charged enough, mm-hmm. and so if you can get to five hundred million or a billion, I'm saying you've maxed out. And at that point, nobody deserves a dollar above that because it's essentially only there because of the Commons, and the Commons demands the the, the rest. Look, I absolutely and, and- agree with you, Trevor. That that rich people did not earn it all, you know, by themselves, that they used the the commons, as you call it, um, and very effectively. And, you know, I've made this point in an argument with my quite well-off brother-in-law. But, um, and your but, brother-in-law would not be affected in my world. But, like your brother-in-law, I assume, has less than $500 million. Oh, much so, less So that, go yeah. for it, your brother-in-law. Yeah. But, but, the, but, the, but, Gina, Reinhardt, little, but look, Gina Reinhardt would be affected. Yeah. But meanwhile, the hamburger flipper down at Grilled is going to be bumped up as well. So yeah. it's the, those top and bottom need to be adjusted. And there's a big area in the middle where a meritocracy can operate Good. pretty much unhindered. But it's the extreme end of wealth that really needs to be stopped because it's undeserved. According to is, you. Yes. And it's dangerous, according to me. And it's the bottom end that, that is screwed because of lack of power. Mm. 
because of labour relations laws have just decreased compared to what they used to be. Mm-hmm. People are at the mercy of, of power. And, and who can argue? Basically, if you're saying to people, look, you're going to be fine, 100 million, 200 million, you won't even notice a difference. Mm. Who's, who could complain I, about I'm that? I'm totally with you that working people deserve to be paid adequately. Mm. Totally, totally with you on that. And if they're not, then you know, there should be some sort of uh, industrial law mechanism mm. to make sure that they are. But I'm a little bit uncomfortable with you setting yourself up, up as the person who decides what is the maximum anybody can earn. Why? You've, you've because quite you've have... set yourself up as a moral arbiter, saying nobody deserves above this amount that I decide. But it's just tax. I'm sorry. You're that's, happy. You're that's happy a dictatorship. For, but you're happy to set a tax rate for top marginal tax rate. Well, I, th- I think everybody should pay tax. Yeah. yeah, and you're happy for the higher income earners to pay higher rate of tax? I absolutely am. So, so we, only disagree on, we only disagree on the rate. No, you, uh, what I disagree with you is... Any particular individual, whether it's dictator Trevor or any other dictator, saying above this amount, nobody shall go, you know. That's I t- I t- just dictatorship. i tell you what. What if I said nine, you can keep 1%? I don't know. Then we're just I talking, don't, I don't we're just talking about a rate. I don't think any of us have the right to say nobody has any right the, to the, be above this level. No, 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 the it's commons, just top, top marginal tax, tax rate yeah, becomes 99 or we're, we're, we're just arguing over the rate. Because you acknowledge that the commons, the community, mm. has the right to take from people I under a taxation absolutely. system. So absolutely. we're only arguing about the rate. No, I'm, I'm arguing over somebody setting, setting a, a ceiling that but nobody may exceed. Paul, you say you, you question, don't we like the idea of a meritocracy? I like the idea of a socialist utopia from each according to their ability to each according to their needs. <laughs> Sounds brilliant to me. We know it's unworkable. It is unworkable. Yeah. Uh, but, but that's the flip side of the meritocracy. So mm. you get the meritocracy for the middle mm. and you get your socialist utopia for the very top and the very bottom. Yeah. That's all right. <laughs> I like it. Is okay. anyone still there in the chat? Are they all gone? <laughs> <laughs> there were 12 last I looked, I think. Good on you. Hanging yeah. in there. Yep. All right. Well, um, we're done. Shay's got to get home. It's 9.15. Right. Next week... Uh, Do you have a curfew, Shay? Right. See, yeah. It's... She turns into a pumpkin. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about next week. I'm really starting to like this every second week. Let's do it every second week. Okay. Well, yeah. If I might just pop on briefly, if I have success in my court mm. case, I might pop on myself and just take, give you the news. Yeah. But uh, this is good sort of every second week, I think. Yeah. So yep. if you're if you're contributing via Patreon, that's fine because you're just paying per episode. If you're contributing via PayPal, then you might want to adjust because I, I, for the near future, it'll be every second week. If you're, so, if you're making it fortnightly, mm. the contributions will go down. I think you should mm. switch it to a monthly donation. Right. Okay. <laughs> whether rather whether than, they listen to anything per or episode not. or not, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, uh, we'll see how that pans out. Clearly, it's not a money-making exercise based on the <laughs> rate per hour. Well, I think we're done. I yes. hope you enjoyed it. Uh, well, I'll probably talk to you briefly next week, but everyone else will be back in two weeks' time. Thank you. Talk to you then. Thank you. Good night. Thank you, everyone. There's a good night from him. The best, like all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity.
Well, dear listener, did you enjoy that episode of the podcast? If you did, I've got a favour to ask. Uh, First up, tell some friends. Let them know about the podcast. You'll be discussing something at some time and you might be repeating something I've said. And when you're talking to your friends, say, hey, I heard this on this podcast and it's worth listening to. And maybe pick an episode that you think's a good one and direct them to it. Like grab their phone and go to their podcast app and search for Iron Fist Velvet Glove and subscribe <laughs> on their behalf on their phone and uh, and just put the word out. The other thing is you could become a patron and support the show. So if you go to our website, you'll see a link to Patreon and there are some different options for subscribing and paying per episode and really the amount that you pay depends on what you get from the podcast. So there's different levels ranging from $1.50 Australian to I think $10 and various ones in between. It's really what do you think it's worth? Is it worth a cup of coffee? Uh, Is it worth more than that, less than that? Whatever you get out of it because not everybody gets the same. Maybe you don't listen to the whole thing. Maybe you never talk about it with people. Maybe you really couldn't care less half the time whether the podcast is there. It just it'll be different for everybody. So if you get a lot out of the podcast, contribute a bit more. If you don't get much, contribute less. But in any event, you can subscribe there. If you don't like the idea of a regular subscription, the website has a link to a PayPal donation. So you could just do a one-off donation every now and again. So there you go. It'd be good to uh, spread the word, get a few more listeners, and that way, look, if we ended up getting more listeners and more money, we could do maybe a second episode or more special episodes, provide some more content. So it's up to you. If you think it's worthwhile, let people know. Thanks.